Hello and welcome to Tipsy Tolstoy, Russian Literature for the Inebriated. I'm Matt Garris Melvich, PhD student in Russian Lit. This week, being transported back to maybe 2012 uh, <laughs> with the music that's been coming out recently. New Pierce DeVille album. I'm really, I'm really thriving. My Warped sure. Tour youth is really coming back to the surface. <laughs> yeah. Did you take, I, I heard that you're going to take an mm-hmm. entire day off to appreciate it. Did you end up doing that? No, I didn't. But my girlfriend came downstairs during the morning and she was like, oh, you listen to a new album. How do you like it? And I'm like, oh, I already listened to it like three times. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I didn't take the full day off, but I didn't take a morning off to really appreciate it. <laughs> sure. Sure. As you should, as it deserves. Yes. As it deserves. Yes. <laughs> Well, I'm Cameron Lalana, and I had a really fun experience last night because I was at the station. I was going over the script for the 11 o'clock show, and I saw a couple of stores I've been assigned. One of them, 680 freeway closure. I thought, I use that freeway. Good to know. <laughs> Probably something that's going to happen over the weekend. And I open it up, and it says, oh, it's going to be closed uh, from this point to this point at 10, a- or 10 p.m. tonight, uh, which is, uh, I was reading that about 9 p.m., and I leave work a little after 11. So I said, nice. oh, good. I just found out I didn't have to find a new way home, which is really fun uh, to do. <laughs> how, how did it go? It, it went fine. I actually, um, the construction started right after an area I was, I'm already like, I kind of grew up around, so I knew some back Perfect. roads. Didn't have to take the uh, company helicopter, so that's no, good. No, 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 mm-hmm. which is actually pretty good because the company helicopter is in a different city. <laughs> right, right, yeah. yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know if they'd let you use it after last uh, time i don't think they'd you know i don't think anyone's left who remembers what happened with that one so i made right. sure that you know kind of a little hush mm-hmm. hush would happen there so doesn't right. affect things going forward all right well that's the news for you baby <laughs> <laughs> this is a podcast where me and my good pal camera get to unwind from our week with some russian literature and a drink or two this morning not evening like normal we're starting book three of war and peace part one And I thought this was a boring part at first. And then I went back and I was doing my notes and I was like, wait a minute, I definitely overlooked a few things here. (laughs) So it turned out to be okay. How could you think this is boring? Tolstoy comes out swinging in part one of this. um... Yeah, no, he he does. But it's kind of just a lot of military boy stuff. Sure, that's true. It's the part of the book where I'm kind of like, okay, you know, I get it. It's I started writing that in my patron like notes document where i'm like you know if you haven't gotten what he's on about military sure. here like it might not be any hope for you Been <laughs> <laughs> the same thing for like 800 pages <laughs> <laughs> well you know if there isn't any hope for you and after investing all this time in reading war and peace if you're following along you probably want to make sure you're getting the most out of uh what you're going through so uh you can get uh, Matt's very helpful notes if you sign up or subscribe to our Patreon. I forget the exact verb for it, uh, but you can head over to patreon.com slash tipsytolstoy, where, as Matt mentioned, he posts a reading guide for each episode, uh, and it'll be including quick commentary on the themes uh, or and major quotes in this part. And once per month, we'll also be hosting a, um, a Patreon-only reading club for each book of, of War and Peace, of the book. So, Sign up for that if you want to make sure that you are among the people for whom there is hope. <laughs> There's not many of you, but some of you may have hope. <laughs> Matt officially going in the offensive against our audience. Yes. Yes, take that. <laughs> if you're not interested in Patreon, but you still want to help us out, you can leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts or sign up for our email list on our website, tipsytolstoy.com.
Right. And Matt, this fine morning, uh, and embarrassingly, that script, which I did uh, edit, I did not mm. I did not accidentally pull over this evening. I did, in fact, write that uh, about oh, 10 minutes before we started good. recording. So that's about that's about how well this is going. Uh, sure. uh, what, what, are you, what are you bringing to the table? Do you have any any drinks for this I morning? I do. Okay. I'm drinking uh, a little something from Brooklyn Brewery. It's a non-alcoholic pilsner called Special Effects, and it's got a kind of trippy looking, you know, art on it. Cool. I like it. It's pretty good. And it's not alcoholic, so I can drink it at like 11 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, I guess I could be drinking drinking at 11 a.m., but sure. that would be uh, not too helpful today for me. Got a lot of stuff yes. to get done. <laughs> you do have a lot of stuff to get done. Well, uh, unlike Matt, for me, it's 9 a.m., so of course I would not be drinking a hard alcohol so instead i have brought uh i'm not coward chauffeur <laughs> hofer hefeweizen beer it's a grapefruit beer only 2.5 percent, so it's really not even alcoholic huh. but i did have oatmeal for breakfast this morning so technically yes, it is alcoholic <laughs> what, that's like what you give children um sure that's what i got when oh. i was like 12 um uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> but if, if 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 children's breakfast cereal commercials are to be believed, this is part grapefruit is part of a complete breakfast along with my oatmeal. So really this okay. is a health no, thing. I'll allow it. <laughs> <laughs> so like Matt mentioned, this is a big military boy part. Sort of. There's a little more. We're getting a, we're getting into the I want to say the War of 1812, but the War of 1812 describes so many things actually. Um 1812 good year for wars, bad years to be in war or even outside or around it but before we get into talking about it matt is there anything you want to to talk about or, or open up with i thought this chapter was really good on the sort of mirrored imagery i kind of noticed something that set up some later things in the book that i had not noticed before and i also just want to say this is the funniest part to me and the whole pierre numerology stuff that we'll talk about <laughs> yeah. I, this is just like i i was talking to someone in our, in our discord about this and she was saying about pierre that uh he's really irritating her because he's just a uh, brainless wishy-washy flopping into whatever people tell him to do and Yes, and I kind of defended him, and I was saying, "Oh, the narrator kind of gives him some interesting things and characteristics." And I and I think the narrator still does, especially in his relationship with Natasha. But he's really hard to defend. Then when he gets the whole numerology, <laughs> he gets into the whole <laughs> numerology thing. It's uh, less than ideal. Yeah, less than ideal, but so very funny. Really funny. Yeah, I was maybe the number one thing I was excited to get into because there are some other things I wanted to get into. I'm really into literature of war. So sure. uh, having like in this part, Nikolai will have an evolving relationship to warfare, especially mm -hmm. now that he's in more active warfare. I thought, yep. oh, this is going to be something that I can, you know, really chat about. We'll be happy to talk about. But then I got to the numerology part and I was like, oh, no, no, we've got something far better and far funnier to talk about. Uh, yeah, I think that Tolstoy really gets his reputation in part from him knocking on the church. But this, this is just as funny. I mean, the sort of new age spiritualist mystic sort of stuff he's uh <laughs> anticipating in a pretty funny way i wish i could call that new age like that was i, I yeah. like this is i've heard equivalent things to this like very close like when i was a kid and you'd have like yeah. someone leave the tv on and you get into like the weird part of like religious tv would suddenly come on like i pretty certain i heard almost exactly this for yeah. uh, like roughly three successive presidents so <laughs> <laughs> no it was 
it's good and we'll we'll get more into it but sure it's good let's talk about the war of 1812 so kicking off tolstoy lays down a theory of history which god i wish if i had the time i would honestly read a lot of this because it was uh, maybe as a as a real theory of applying the practice of doing like history as as like a discipline a little suspect however as a literary device really cool really good he would have hated modern historians i feel oh. like yeah, he lays out. He also hates doctors, but to be yes. fair, for the time period he's writing in, uh, they are prescribing like chicken cutlets and going to the sea. So, all right. I mean, man kind of cured himself just drinking kumis <laughs> like all day. So I guess if that had happened to me, I would have been like, I don't need this doctor stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So he he lays down. I, I I should say. Let me just. There's like so many big parts. A lot of it, it basically covers what we've been talking about a lot of his theory of history as not like an individual person, but as the you know innumerable things that happens. Uh, what he says about this, and it, he introduces the year of 1812. Let me go ahead. This is going to be a little bit of a longer quote, but I think this really sets the scene for this part. On the 12th of June, 1812, the forces of Western Europe crossed the Russian frontier and war began. That is, an event took place opposed to human reason and to human nature. Millions of men perpetrated against one another such innumerable crimes, frauds, treacheries, thefts, forgeries, issues of false money, burglaries, arsons, and murders, as in whole centuries are not recorded in the annals of all the law courts of the world, but which those who committed them did not at the time regard as being crimes. So, sets you up for what we're going to be experiencing <laughs> in terms of warfare yeah. here. Um, yeah. And as he goes on to talk about the causes of the war, he says this, We can understand what... The matter seemed like to contemporaries. It naturally seemed to Napoleon that the war was caused by England's intrigues, as in fact he said in the island of St. Helena. It naturally seemed to members of the English parliament that the cause of war was Napoleon's ambitions, to the Duke of Oldenburg that the cause of war was the violence done to him, to businessmen that the cause of war was the continental system which was ruining Europe, to the generals and old soldiers that the chief reason for the war was the necessity of giving them employment, to the legitimists of the day that it was the need of reestablishing Le Bon Principe, uh, Principe, and to the diplomats of that time, that it had all resulted from the fact that an alliance between Russia and Austria in 1809 had not been sufficiently well concealed from Napoleon and the awkward wording of Memorandum Number 178. It is natural that these, in a countless and infinite quantity of other reasons, the numbers depending on the endless diversity of points of view, presented themselves to men of that day, but to us, to posterity, who view the thing that happened in all its magnitude and perceive its plain and terrible meaning, these causes seem insufficient. To us, it is incomprehensible that millions of Christian men killed and tortured each other, either because Napoleon was ambitious or Alexander was firm, or because England's policy was astute, or because the Duke of Oldenburg was wronged. We cannot grasp what connection such circumstances have with the actual fact of slaughter and violence. Why? Because the Duke was wronged, thousands of men from the other side of Europe killed and ruined the people of Smolensk and Moscow and were killed by them. So, like I said, longer one. But, <laughs> I mean, this is Tolstoy reiterating what we've been saying for many episodes now of the tenuous connection between the so-called great man of history and the actual fact of, of what happening and also what really happened as well as who actually carries it out. He goes on to say that, you know, this entire war, no matter, Napoleon's ambitions would have meant nothing if simply the soldiers and the officers felt that they didn't need to fight the war. If simply they just didn't go to war and didn't lay down their lives, none of this would have happened. 
And in fact, it's, you know, a yeah. larger social pressure and basically says, you know, individual man is not an individual. A, a man has an individual life, but also has a historical role to play. And, and it's not, you're not always in control of it, especially the higher up on the ladder you are, the less in control you are of your own life. And the more that the pressures of the world and the, the so-called smaller people actually press you into doing things is what he outlines in this part. Yeah, it actually kind of like predates a lot of thinkers on totalitarianism a little bit and kind of thinking about why people go to war and why do they do bad things that we all know that we shouldn't do and yet we do. Um, well, I guess not all of us go to war, but we all do bad things. And so it's just a really interesting question because I'm also reading Life and Fate for a course right now. And so I actually was looking for this uh, other quote, which I'll talk about a little bit later in life and fate not realizing that i'd actually read it in war and peace because it <laughs> sounded like something grossman would have said talking about the soviet union right yeah you know. I, th I think the thing that's something interesting about tolstoy overall is you can see a lot of like kernels of ideas and thought that is mm -hmm. like essential or even like foundational in other lines of thinking you know here origins of like studies of totalitarianism in his book what is to be done a sort of like non-socialist non-marxist work which you could very easily see someone picking up and then like you could see the very easy through line of well how can a class of owners have do nothing and simply earn from people who do work like that's a very you can easily see the lines yeah. to a marxist yeah. thought there of course he doesn't make that step and he i don't you know i don't think there's any evidence to say that he was even aware of that but he, he's getting these kind of kernels of of thought that he writes down which are so foundational or important in other pieces of of thought which he just never really goes as far or engages with as other thinkers would he also kind of like dunks on his own theory of like nonviolent resistance which he kind of comes to advocate for by the end of his life but then also acknowledges the kind of impossibility of it i guess <laughs> because he's right yeah if you just refuse to do anything then nothing will happen and if you refuse to go to war there will be no war but it's not really just that simple Right. Yeah. So I'm sure we'll come back to that more. But yeah. Yeah. Strong opener for this book. Pretty strong opening. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I, when I was reading this, I had sometimes when I'm reading something, I get a sense of like, oh, man, this person, this is an author. Not to say that other writers aren't authors, but like this is someone who has a, a mastery over their form. And, and I get that like reading Akhmatova, especially like a Requiem or reading Hunter S. Thompson. There's like those are people who I just get a sense of someone who has control over their craft mm -hmm. uh, in a way that specifically connects with me. And this was one of those. And it was just just fun reading it, too. Well, that's why uh, Tolstoy gets to be part of the golden age, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so from here, we join Napoleon, who is kind of at the front lines and he's uh, leaving Dresden where he has just been entertaining the rest of uh, European nobility and, and is having good relations with you know, the Prussians and the Russians and, uh, you know, other states, the Poles, I think, are there, Polish nobility are there as well. And he leaves and says, all right, well, time to continue my war making on them. <laughs> and he's, uh, you know, crossing lines, he's uh, entering at this point, enters into Russia. And, you know, the devotion to him is so strong that at one point when he goes to, uh, uh, when he goes forward of his troops, uh, a Polish uh, uh, unit, I think it's led by, led by Colonel C. Napoleon. It wants to impress him so much that this river they're about to ford. He says, "No, no, don't worry about setting up a proper way to ford. We're just going to swim across to impress Napoleon." And they do it, and forty people die 
And he, the colonel, once he's reached the other side, completely drenched, turns around to, you know, go hurrah to Napoleon. And he finds that Napoleon left a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> so, although the colonel was later enrolled in the Legion of Honor for something that Napoleon presumably was told about and said, okay, sure. And at this exact same time, the czar Alexander is trying to figure out what do we do? And he's meeting with his generals and other advisors and aides de camp. And nothing's getting done until someone says, I know, let's resolve this tension by having a ball to not worry about it for a little bit. And so they, they put together a ball, which has, you know, many of our, many of our favorite characters there, Boris Drubetskoy, now very rich because of his marriage. He's there with Helena. You know, he and, and she kind of had this sort of intimacy formerly. Now they're spent time together at the ball, but Boris is like, he's just got laser eyes for the czar the whole time. He's like dancing with her, but no matter what, no matter what's going on, he's just eye to the emperor. <laughs> he, he knows, <laughs> he knows what to pay attention to and that's ways to advance. And in, in during this ball, the czar realizes that, uh, Napoleon or finds out that Napoleon has entered, uh, Imperial Russian territory, which Boris overhears. And after the czar specifically says, uh, do not tell anyone about this. Boris immediately scampers off to go tell some nobles who he can, get some standing with by telling them this information. So from there, we kind of enter this scene or this extended a couple of parts or chapters where the czar says, we need to respond. He writes a letter and he dispatches uh, one of his, his close advisors, um, Belashov, to go deliver that to Napoleon. And Belashov enters, encounters endless resistance. He assumes because he's being sent by the czar, it's going to be super easy. But he's even being like, just being detained by any given general or any given colonel or officer sees him. They keep stopping him and delaying him for days. And even one, you know, our old friend, General Murat, back from 1806, 1807, who was the one who very nearly crushed um, Kutuzov's, I think it was the force Kutuzov was leaving, uh, like pulls him aside, and has a really friendly conversation with him. You know, even the Tolstoy talks of his tone as one of, um, as one of a servant speaking to the a servant of another master whose two masters are feuding, but wants to make clear that he's got no beef with that servant. <laughs> so he's very friendly and a little maudlin before, you know, days after days after Abelashov is dispatched, he finally gets to Napoleon. And after being brought to Napoleon, he finds that he is in the exact same house that Tsar Alexander <laughs> dispatched him from because in that amount of time, the French army has taken so much land. <laughs> So from there, he he delivers the letter to Napoleon, and they they discuss and have an evening together. And Napoleon goes between being very pleasant and even kind of like really engaged with Balashov to ranting at him about how uh, about how he's been forced to invade, and and the implication that he started the war is very offensive to him because obviously Russia started this war by uh, allying with England in such a way that would obviously create treachery, creating some unfortunate modern political parallels uh, for that justification for invasion. Eventually, Balashov gets to go home after this kind of uneven, this this character, Napoleon, who's mercurial, sometimes friendly, sometimes ranting for you know minutes or hours at a time uh, in such a way that Tolstoy says, it's really the kind of talk you talk when you're trying to convince yourself of your own rightness. So Balashov re returns and after you know this, the letter from Tsar Alexander is to say, hey, if you leave my territory, we don't have to fight. And Napoleon says, au contraire, in fact, we must, because you've started this war. So Andre, at this time, is trying to hunt down Anatoly, <laughs> most important thing <laughs> to be doing. 
he and he's, he's seriously going to the ends of the earth. He hears that Anatoly is in Turkey with the military, so he goes to find Kutuzov and he gets a posting to go to Turkey. And he gets to Turkey uh, and realizes that Anatoly has already gone home. And <laughs> so he decides, okay, I'm <laughs> oh, sorry, no, Anatoly, I think, has gone back to Moscow, but to go join the war in the east. And so he says, okay, well, I'm going to go join the war in the east. Uh, on the way there, he stops at Bald Hills again and finds that everything in the house is much worse. The house is now divided into two camps. His father, Madame Borian, and their engineer, Tijon, on one side, and his sister, Maria, his son, Nikolai, and some of the other servants on the other side. After staying for a time, arguing with his father, telling him that Madame Borian is kind of the cause of their problems, he reali- realizes, as as like Maria is trying to convince him to to forgive Anatoly, um, and he thinks, like, no, I can't, I can't do this. Uh, these conditions of life had been the same before, but then they were all connected. Well, now they had tumbled to pieces. Only senseless things, lacking coherent presence, only senseless things, lacking coherence, presented themselves one after another to Prince Andrew's mind. I like that he's like, no, forgiveness is for women. And I'm a man. I don't forgive anybody. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's good. Especially he doesn't forgive the man who um, convinced his child bride not to marry him in a yeah. sort of roundabout way. Yeah, and mm-hmm. then tried to kidnap her. Yeah. Which, yeah, all right. All right. <laughs> Speaking of, we're not done with that whole Natasha plot. Hopefully. No, no. You no. might wish it's done, but it's not. So Andre reaches the front of the war by the end of June and finds that Anatoly's gone home and thinks, all right, well, I guess I'll stay here and fight. <laughs> <laughs> May as well. I've already traveled multiple countries to try to kill this man, so... Dude, being an aristocrat must have been kind of awesome though you could yeah you could just throw it on your whole i throw it on your whole life just to embark on a quest of revenge yeah that's awesome <laughs> yeah so when he, when he finds in this kind of camp he realizes that pretty much most people here are opportunists and the ones who aren't opportunists the eight or nine camps he divides everyone up into are either like so fundamentally opposed that they're really doing nothing helpful to advance the war effort um that it's just halting things or they're opportunists who are just saying whatever's fashionable at that given time, which basically means nothing is happening. Uh, no one come to any agreements. I forgot that there were like nine camps because I was just reading this. I was like, oh, yes, the two camps yeah. into which people can be divided. <laughs> and he just kind of keeps going and going and going. I don't, I don't know if we set it up, though, because I had that exact same impression that I thought is like, OK, the two camps. But he, then he keeps going. And also, as a side note, he just starts laying down how like <laughs> like kind of insulting every given like group there um at one point there it's a it's a mishmash of uh, of people fighting the french not only uh, imperial russian nobility but also some prussians germans uh italians uh poles uh i think a you know a czech general is in there but at some point when they're discussing <laughs> andre has this thought uh, or maybe it's the narrator because only Germans are self-confident enough on the basis of an abstract notion, science, that is, the supposed knowledge of absolute truth, a Frenchman is self-assured because he regards himself personally, both in mind and body, as irresistibly attractive to men and women. An Englishman is self-assured as being a citizen of the best organized state in the world, and therefore, as an Englishman always knows what he should do and knows all he does as an Englishman is undoubtedly correct. An Italian is self-assured because he is excitable and easily forgets himself and other people. A Russian is self-assured because he knows nothing and does not want to know anything since he does not believe that anything can be known. Um, so, <laughs> uh, Yeah, I mean, I guess you would hate to be someone studying IR or political science. <laughs> 
This this chapter is like a real who's who of like problematic IR professors. <laughs> Truly? Yeah, this is like it's this is on the same level for me as sitting down to talk to someone in an IR class and they bring up unprompted the clash of civilizations and start <laughs> defending it. That's the exact same vibe to me. <laughs> I saw that book on Twitter as somebody who said it, it had dealt the most damage to IR as a discipline. Um and I, I think I tagged you on that one. I got a real kick oh, out I, of it. Yeah. <laughs> Yep, that sounds about. I had a professor who she was the most tactful woman I've ever known. Like people would throw questions out of left field, and she would like casually deflect. Uh, like one yep. time, someone I forget what the context was asked something about like nine eleven and like kind of kind of conspiratorially, uh, and she was just very was like you know honestly that's not something I know a lot about. Um, you know, Professor Olmsted actually teaches a class on American conspiracy theories, so you might be able to speak with her, and she would probably have a deeper knowledge in that subject. In like such a casual way. Yeah, yeah. The professor actually uh, did nine eleven. <laughs> <laughs> so she was like that tactful. When it came to the clash of civilizations, she said she brought it up and said, "I'm only bringing it up because we have to bring it up because it has a place in IR history." However, I would like to emphasize that this is a completely ahistorical and a scientific view of uh, a piece of work, essentially. But is, is there like, really a piece of work that can be scientific, Cameron? That's a good. That's a question Tolstoy would like to pose. And certainly, as Tolstoy would have it, the Germans believe so. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, I also, I think it's funny. Like, it going through? Obviously, he's kind of insulting everybody, but it's like he's got like a good old fashioned like nineteen tens views of Italians in this one. Everyone else, gets, I, I like, felt like he ran on a scene when he came to Italians. Actually, <laughs> yeah. you know, he's yeah. All the other ones, he's like these really in depth things for the Italians. He's like, I don't know, Italians are dumb. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> it's like all right (laughs) so um andre he continues through the camp he attends meetings and and he realizes as he's watching everyone that as as it said in the book a thought had long since occurred and often occurred to him during his military activities the idea that there is not and cannot be any science of war and therefore there can be no such thing as military genius now appeared to him an obvious truth um and he goes on to say, go on like a longer rant. This, this is a good part for longer rants, which I enjoy, yeah, but I won't read them all because that would take up the entire podcast. But he basically goes on to say, well, they're also the same thing. I think I wrote one of these in my notes and I was like, do you get it yet? Do you get it yet? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I he does it with with artist uh, uh, authorial skill. So every time I'm, I'm still into yeah, it. Yeah. But he goes on to say, like, can we really consider a man a genius? How can anyone really know? that um what we should be doing at any given time of course there's so many factors this relies on knowing troop strength where's the enemy going to be this and that you cannot possibly know that really the man doesn't need to be smart creative intelligent you just need to be stoic and straightforward enough to ignore everything around you except the order in front of you and just carry that out and that's considered military genius if you're lucky well and that's why he doesn't like most of the camps because they think napoleon's a genius when as we saw from some of the earlier parts, it just happened to be that he could see through fog. It was just complete coincidence and happenstance. So he only likes this one German because this one German thinks that Napoleon's an idiot for not following his theory of war. But he agrees that, yes, Napoleon is an idiot, but he doesn't like the German because of, you know, German stuff. And <laughs> <laughs> But he does agree that Napoleon is not a genius. And that's kind of, I think, what he's trying to kind of point and mock a little bit or a lot of it so from there andre decides i'm gonna go join the military or the army itself which he loses standing forever 
because the czar asks him basically, hey, do you want to stay here with me? And he says, no, I'm good. Thanks, though. <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> I want to go so, die over here. <laughs> <laughs> honestly, preferable to hearing you all talk. <laughs> so from there, we go to, to Nikolai, who's now going back to the military after that whole thing that happened last time. And his parents are begging him to come back. He says, no. But he writes to Sonia and says, look, you know, my love, comma, my cousin, comma, I will return after this war and this will be our last separation and then we can finally get married. And this is about almost this is seven years on from big, the beginning of the book. So it's he's in his mid 20s now. He's been on and off an officer in a Hussar regiment for the better part of a decade. So now he's sort of a senior. He there are many young people who he recognizes as in the same position as himself seven years ago. And he kind of has this same uh, almost paternal relationship to them sometimes. Um, and even begins to dislike many members of his regiment because they, he, he sees them as too boisterous or too, their tales too false. So he's becoming more discerning and, you know, he goes, he goes out and they begin to, after some carousing and meeting women, uh, actually go out and out to fight. And now Nikolai no longer feels afraid approaching the battlefield. Remember back at the, in his first action, so to speak, he was literally so afraid that he couldn't even like duck under cannon fire. And now it's not that he's not afraid. It's just that he now knows how to organize his thoughts and still act with that fear. And it, it's also it's changed so much that now when he hears there's fighting, he goes directly to the front to go see it happen. And, you know, watches a, a unit of Ulan. Um, uh, that's like a Prussian like cavalry, you know, charge the French. And he's just sitting there. And he's just kind of enjoying the scene. He sees an opening and he goes up to an officer and says, hey, we could like exploit that and, you know, crush the French, these dragoons, also kind of a light cavalry. And the officer is like, well, yeah, we probably could. And then Nikolai says, OK, perfect. And he rides off and he like rallies the regiment. And he charges without really any order. And he's feeling brave and heroic. And he pulls out a saber and he sees a French officer and he leans in for that strike. And in that very moment, he feels like an incredible discomfort come over him as he sees the officer fall off his horse and get like caught up in his, in his saddle. And he, it's noted I, 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 as he goes into this, that he acted as he did when hunting without reflecting or considering, which keep the hunting thing in mind and remember specifically how Nikolai did when he was hunting. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he, after he, he strikes the officer, something vague and confused, which he could not at all account for, had come over him with the capture of that officer. The officer was captured with the capture of that officer and blow he had dealt him. Uh, and he kind of he even though everyone kind of claps him on the back for it, he feels a vague feeling, almost shameful about it. And he's just like, how could I do like he just thinks and he's even given a St. George's Cross uh, a high award and later command of a battalion for that. But he's kind of like how could I do that? How could, how is he to blame? He's just like a guy like me. So he has his, uh, um, all quiet in the Western front moment. Uh, and yeah, that he feels shame. He feels bad about the war. So going back to Moscow itself, Natasha at the end of the last part has fallen ill. Doctors try to cure her. We mentioned that Dolstoy goes in this part of Rio Grande against doctors because it's, apparent to the narrator that it's really not a real illness, but in fact, just sort of grief that has overcome her. You know, that classic, um, that classic disease, which only strikes women in like certain eras <laughs> in books written by men. I was going to say like the uh, way he, grief. <laughs> yeah, the way he describes it really, you know, this one doesn't quite land. 
you know, she died of a broken heart. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, although I do like the point, I, I thought it was, I thought I like the way that the doctor's presence is kind of a talisman for everyone. For the family, a talisman that they're doing something. And for Natasha, a talisman that rejecting what they have to do for her is a sign that she does not really value her own life and kind of makes her feel better in a way. From there, she starts through asking a friend coming to Moscow and saying, hey, I'm here for religious service. Come with me to communion. Natasha goes with her and she kind of has this sudden moment of realizing I was bad, but with God, I can be good. And she gets really religious and feels suddenly that she can, you know, anything is possible. Um, finally, I was I was vile, but finally I'm good. And, you know, after like a week of this, she attends a sermon and the and she's praying up there. She feels really holy, and she's praying, and she's praying for her friends and her family, and she's praying for her enemies too. And she prays for everyone, you know, under the auspices of of you know God's vision. And then the priest is up at the front, being like, "God, strike down the enemies of the imperial <laughs> Russian state. We will crush them, and you will know. Everyone will know that we are God's chosen people." And she's like, "Yeah, what? I I mean, I think so. I mean, I, I think we're supposed to pray for enemies, but okay, sounds good." you're the priest <laughs> and so even with this kind of weird tension here she begins to start feeling better and improving physically at the same time uh, pierre uh, this year has been doing okay he's kind of living the same life but the thought of natasha is like making him feel like life is worth living suddenly kind of the same state as andre there that that's coming back and um he you know at this point the war uh, the war uh, like fever is getting strong in moscow and there's worries about spies and people are learning finally the aristocracy are learning russian because they're worried about being accused of being saboteurs or spies and um pierre attends a dinner at the rostovs and he at this time has also i should say absolute unit alert in the street he had grown so <laughs> stout this year that he would have been abnormal had he not been so tall so broad of limb and so strong that he carried his bulk with evident ease um, so you might have look out, uh, look out, baby. <laughs> so he attends a dinner, brings them a letter from the emperor. And at that point, like Natasha, because she's doing better, he, she, he's like overcome with, Oh my God, I'm too in love with a teenager and decides to leave and he can't go back. Oh, I want to actually circle back. Sorry. I'm going to, I'm going to wrap up in just a second. I'm going to circle back to Natasha in a second when she's in church. Uh, it's mentioned that she, People are kind of talking about how attractive she is. And she knows she's attractive, but that's a, a you know terrible curse for her. It makes her condition worse. And I think it's funny that I, I don't know if this appears otherwise, but between Father Sergius and Natasha, there's I'm seeing that we're almost at a pattern of characters being like, oh, I want to be good and godly, but oh, I'm just so hot. <laughs> so hot. Yeah, I don't know what to do. <laughs> My biggest struggle in life is that I'm too hot. And when I go to church, people just talk about how hot I am all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and i would say you know i would attribute to him like that the bigger trend of male authors being like oh this woman is so attractive but he does it for men and women we know we have mm -hmm. two examples here just people mm -hmm. being too hot to be in church <laughs> <laughs> and needing to become anchorites to get away from <laughs> the evil the evil claws of other people who think they're attractive um at the same time after as pierre is deciding i have to leave and i could never come back uh petia the youngest child of the Rostovs, now 15, decides he needs to join the Hussars like his brother. And his father said, says to him, no, <laughs> what? no, 
And his, his exact words are, which is very funny to me, um, he kind of yells at him and says, the, the milk of your mother is not yet dry on your lips. You cannot basically I, go and fight. <laughs> I didn't like that. You didn't like that? I thought that was, it's like an old fashioned, um, I, the phrase, like the insult, uh, I, I've never heard this in years, but like when you're a teenager, you like hear the teenagers like, oh, have your balls dropped yet? Which always kind of grossed me out. And this one is still gross, but like slightly less gross. Is it? I don't know. I, I was like uncomfortable. <laughs> I, I, it's uncomfortable because I mean, if someone said that to me, I would be like, all right, that's a little weird. <laughs> a Mostly little because weird. I'm 25 and filing my taxes as an independent for like the last seven, six, seven years. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> all right. Yeah, fair enough. But yeah, he does dunk on Petya pretty good. He does. It's a good dunk. But Petya is so, so dedicated to this idea that he wants to go see the czar when he approaches and, um, He's almost crushed in a crowd and his father's like, oh, Jesus, OK, fine. If you're going to go to that extreme, I'll find a not dangerous posting for you. Uh, and then finally, we end on the czar coming to the nobility and asking them for a tribute of, of soldiers or soldiers, quote unquote, peasants conscripted. Uh, and there, there's a whole big debate, which Pierre tries to get into. And Pierre gets dunked on when he tries to engage in the debate before finally the czar shows up. And everyone, regardless of what they were debating for, jumps up and says, yeah, whatever you want, sir. Uh, 10,000 troops? Sure. And Pierre is like, yeah, I'll raise 1,000. You know, they're trying to outdo <laughs> each other. And Pierre was like, his his initial point was, we need to ask about what he needs to figure out what we can smartly give. You know, and he comes in, he's just like a whole regiment. What do you need? <laughs> which, to be fair, I mean, I don't know if anyone in the book is actually richer than Pierre. So, hey. That's true. He is, he could very easily do that. Yeah. And this is where we end part one of book three. Oh, yeah. Boy, there is a lot. I think we've gone over a good, good amount of it as we've been going. But is there anywhere you want to start or anything you wanted to cover to kick off? Yeah, uh, I can think of a few things that I think would be good to talk about. I was thinking a little bit about ritual. Uh, ritual between war and the ritual of medicine, which you kind of pointed to already, which I thought was good. The sort of thing that Nikolai does when he's talking amongst his regiment and people are telling stories and he has, like he said, this sort of mature reflection of knowing that these stories are all fake, but they serve this role of kind of glorifying the country and the czar. And so he has to kind of partake in them or at least not be grumpy about it, not um, tell people that they're lying, that this is a fake thing. It sort of is just this military ritual i guess is how i started to think about it it's not a it's not something that anyone intentionally tries to do but it's something that they all do kind of regardless of intention and they're all kind of part of that sort of life and so that was an, an interesting thought to me in the same way that the ritual of medicine right like you mentioned is kind of there not to actually cure anybody, but to make everyone around that person sort of feel better and feel like they sort of have a place in the course of something that can't really uh, be altered. Uh, I would probably disagree with the idea that of <laughs> that, especially with modern medicine. I think that Tolstoy kind of loses his thread on the medicine when he, he tries to link it to his kind of overall world theory of like, people are so different and there's so many nuances that medicine as a science can never really do anything. And like you said, for the time he's writing that maybe is true, probably is true. I, I think that medicine has definitely given us good things. I would <laughs> like to keep receiving medicine. If any doctors sure. are listening, thank you for medicine. I do think that he might be 
you might be onto something in the way that you could argue there is sort of an over-reliance on like medicine and medication. Mm -hmm. And there are like kind of maybe other things that we could look to address to sort of fix or improve health. Um, And so like maybe you could make that sort of argument in the line of Tolstoy's thinking. I think there is an argument to be made for that, but I would probably say just his like <laughs> distaste of medicine and kind of distrust of doctors sure. is, is not rooted in that same exact thinking. Yeah. I, I mean, I'll go so far to defend his point as is, I think this is around the same time, maybe a little before, maybe a little after when becoming a surgeon was like a superstar thing to do. And so it's right. just like a funny thing that they did like, oh, come watch the surgeon do surgery. He, he can do it real fast. Uh, which you can do it real fast up. and like three in ten people survive. Hmm? <laughs> so, I mean, if that's your point of reference, okay. Um, yeah. You know, I don't know. No evidence that he, I think, I don't know if you've ever, there's this one, I'll put it in the show notes, story around this era of like some surgeon who was like repute, reportedly like, oh, I'm the fastest surgeon. And one time he went so fast that his surgery had a 300% fatality rate when he, I did not only this. he cut off, yes. yeah, he cut off his assistant's fingers when yes. they were in the person, the person started bleeding out, his assistant started bleeding out, and someone <laughs> in the crowd died of shock. And obviously, the patient and the assistant both died. So and like, Tolstoy was actually in the audience, and he said, I told you not to trust the Germans, and he spat on the ground, and he walked out. Yeah, he did do that. Yeah, so I'll defend the point insofar as, yeah, okay, so at the time, there was some dodgy stuff. I think it is specifically mentioned that she's like assigned like sleeping in chicken cutlets, so... And some like mysterious pills. So, all right, for a certain point of view at a certain time, fair enough. However, it kind of loses, kind of loses itself in in light of development. Yeah, but I think that's an okay <laughs> prescription, at least for me. A lot of the times, sure, when I don't feel right, you know, got a migraine. You know, fortunately, I don't have any serious illnesses at the moment. <laughs> but uh, I think most of it could be solved for me by like taking a nap and eating a chicken cutlet. That would be sure pretty good i did almost sleep off strep throat once so maybe there's i was i was asleep for almost four straight days but yeah yeah i don't yeah no i don't think anyone people i just like disappeared for four days and people i came back and like hey what happened like oh i had strep i I got a doctor's appointment like four days in they're like yeah you got strep throat here like it's almost gone though so and then everyone's (laughs) like wait you just slept for for like you have like what'd you eat i was like well after day three i pulled myself out of bed to get some soup they're like jesus christ (laughs) please tell me next time you're sick The weird thing is, I didn't live alone. I had like six roommates. In fact, I had six housemates and one person I lived in a room with. And (laughs) I don't think that ever came up. Anyway. That's good. Beside the point. So I kind of think, though, like it's he points to this thing that exists between humans of it's like this fundamental goodness that exists. You want to help even though you know there's nothing that you can really do. So we've constructed something to make us feel involved in the process. And I'm... I don't know. I'm sure there are plenty of examples of of this today. I mean, it was just an interesting way to kind of like conceptualize of that system. So I, I found that fascinating, even though I, as I mentioned, I, I like medicine. You could put me on the record for that. I have taken medicine <laughs> before. Official t- tipsy Tolstoy line on medicine is that we, we like we like medicine. Yes, we have developed some stances here. We like medicine and we are against um, child marriages. So pretty yes. strong stances. Pretty strong, pretty controversial ones. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Next time I get mm-hmm. strep throat, please give me antibiotics if it's medically necessary. If my doctor's listening to this. Yep. Um, <laughs> yep. So, okay. From there, do you want to, do you mind if we talk about war for a little bit? I know we talked a little bit about the ritual. Yeah. 
There's not like a yeah, whole lot to say. Them. We kind of went over a lot of Tolstoy is kind of just hammering home pretty obvious points. Um, I think the most subtle one is his theory of history, which he lays out in exacting detail. So yeah. the narrator pretty much says what Tolstoy means in that regard. Uh, oh, I mean, yes. the, only th- <laughs> the only thing I can think is, is interesting really is besides, I mean, to your point of the ritual uh, parallels between the doctors and uh, the tales of, of soldiers. Uh, when Nikolai actually fights the French for the first time, and I think, I know he's fought, he's fought once before when he, he comes across uh, like a French soldier in that misty battleground in which he just throws his gun and runs. So this yeah, is yeah. Uh, maybe not the first time he's actually fought, but the first time the text actually gives him a violent action. Mm-hmm. And um, as, it, as it said, you know, he, the moment that the bullet lands, all his animation vanishes um, and the officer falls and, uh, you know, he, his eyes screwed up with fear as if in every moment expecting another blow, gazed up at Rostov with shrinking terror. His pale and mud-stained face, fair and young with a dimple in the chin and light blue eyes, was not an enemy's face at all, suited to a battlefield, but a most ordinary one. I mean, this isn't an especially deep point. You read any given book on war, it's like, yeah, this is the point. We're all basically... We're all basically brethren. Who? Why are we fighting each other? Yeah, I mean, I've been thinking a little bit too, like in terms of life and fate, and just kind of propaganda in general, right? Like the like single biggest element of war propaganda is dehumanizing the other, and so what Tolstoy does in here is he rehumanizes war. And when Nikolai sees the humanity on his enemy's face, there's just this sort of sudden realization that kind of washes over him that this is so completely wrong why does he do it i i don't know i mean he's i when i was reading this what i wanted to bring in is there's an author i like a lot tim o'brien mm-hmm. and uh I, for some people here if you're into an american high school might one of his books might have been an assigned reading for you the things they carried i don't know if you maybe have you ever read that uh no funny story i okay. bought that book once it sat in my locker all year because sure at the sort of orientation here's what you need to buy for this year i misread the board and thought this was uh for my english class when in fact it was for a different one so that book stayed in my locker all year because i didn't realize it until the end of the year and i had so much anxiety in high school i thought like well what if i need this book you know when's the teacher (laughs) going to talk about this book it was on the board and so the things i carried were that book (laughs) in my locker the whole year Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, very true to the first chapter of the things they carried. I'm sure. Which, uh, by the way, of if you ever read Tim O'Brien, things they carried, it's a good book. There's a reason why it's chosen for high schools. However, I would recommend you instead read July, July, and then maybe In the Lake of the Woods, which I think is his best book, but I don't think other people agree with me about that. Anyway, so one in, in one of the lines that's always stuck with me from the things they carried, and this is a chapter in which uh, a sol- uh, um, one soldier in Vietnam, the Tim O'Brien mostly writes about being an American soldier in Vietnam. There's a soldier who wishes he had deserted, but basically says, I wasn't brave enough to to flee to Canada when I got my draft notice. And as he's kind of sitting in the jungle, he thinks men killed and died because they were embarrassed not to. Um, they were they went to war not for glory or or power or not for any honorable reason, but simply to avoid the blush of dishonor. Men died because they were afraid of death from embarrassment. Essentially, that's a paraphrase, but. And, and that's a, l- a little different here. They're obviously, some of the nobility are actually going to war in this in War and Peace for glory and mm-hmm. honor. Um, however, I think as an underlying idea, and especially getting to Tolstoy's point about us individually not 
solely being responsible for ourselves, but also being kind of pushed on by the forces of history, forces of history being everyone around us. Yeah, in a lot of ways, with the exception of Pierre, who does resist that embarrassment, a lot of them are going to this fight because it would be embar- it would be dishonorable not to. It would be if I show fear, if I show that I'm insufficiently loyal, that's really embarrassing to me. And that's like a form of death as a mm-hmm. as a young person in this society, or even as an older person in this society. You see it also too in like these all these principled stands, the nobility and our aristocrats have and how we should deal with the conscription immediately fading away in the view of the czar walking in and no one wanted to be the one person asking the question of do you actually need 10 men out of every thousand serfs I have, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. Yeah, the, the point that Tolstoy makes is consciously man lives for himself, but unconsciously he serves as an instrument for the accomplishment of the historical social ends of mankind, which was uh, sort of similar. Yeah. Talking about that kind of existing but unrecognizable force that propels everything forward. The The hand of the world historical clock, as I think he called it a few parts yeah. back good times good times warfare um i think that's warfare. all i really had to say about that i would be a deserter i think <laughs> yeah yeah well I mean, given you know generally especially in this war when you're <laughs> what are you fighting for you know what i don't get in this one like is like mm. how do you not get lost they do you know how constantly. Far these people are tra- like I know they do, but like I, I, I simply do not understand how you move this many people on foot across the country. Like just how you lose a lot of them. I think you just bring enough and hope that by the yeah, time you get I there, guess that, <laughs> that is, I guess, kind of the way it goes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, all right, you solved that for me. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you need ten men out of every thousand. That way, like one has the chance of actually making it to where they're going. <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> so much of this book is just uh, various characters wandering around trying to figure out where they're supposed to go and par- as part of war. Like that entire yeah. bit where I think it's, is it, I want to say it's Andre who is dispatched to go to um, wherever the, the new Prussian capital is and like has to go to several towns along the way just to figure out where the hell that is at this point. <laughs> yeah, that would be, that'd be me. But I think I get lost and I just would kind of, stop i kind of like peter out my momentum you know? <laughs> all right that's good enough for me i think yeah, um, i made it far enough <laughs> um to your point about sometimes developing developments in technology and in medicine sometimes under uh undercutting tolstoy's points a bit uh specifically he's talking about how can really we have this knowledge of warfare um he really is truly writing from a time when if you wanted to deliver news you'd send out a dude and be like well i think he'll get there I hope he gets back. I'll find out in a couple of weeks to a month. And now military <laughs> technology is unmanned spy satellites or unmanned aerial drones, spy satellites, yeah. radios, sonar. It's uh, <laughs> it's not perfect, obviously. Yeah, like there's obviously, well, I guess, a little bit more predictability. There's like better knowledge, a higher level of knowledge. But a lot of war and political decisions still depend on individuals making some choice. And you never, like no satellite's going to be able to help you predict for the most part, uh, what someone's going to decide to do in a sort of split second decision. But sure. yeah, I, I'd be curious to know how he'd feel about satellite. <laughs> Probably. Well, interestingly, I have no evidence for this, but I think Tolstoy would be like a big anti uh, nuclear proliferation guy. Mm. 
and I, I know exactly what he'd do, a story he'd tell constantly. <laughs> Maybe this is just an archetype I know, but okay. I think at some point during the Cold War, and I'll link this in the show notes with more details, there is like an American like sonar station or like some kind of like reconnaissance thing for specifically ICBMs, it like sees a missile launch from the Soviet Union and they're panicking and they're trying to confirm that and they're like really getting ready for a nuclear response because they think, oh, it's just happened until at some point, like someone double checking realizes like, oh, wait, no, this isn't that's a, that was a simulation that accidentally got activated. Right. That never actually happened. Um, and so I don't I don't think it was actually that close to like nuclear Armageddon, but the specter of it was raised and the possibility was there that that could have led to a response. That, and I know for a fact that Tolstoy would like be talking yeah. about that endlessly. <laughs> yeah, he would be insufferable with that story. He would. It sounds like it could have been written by him, honestly. Yeah, honestly, <laughs> honestly the, the, any given near nuclear disaster during the Cold War could have been a parable by Tolstoy. <laughs> <laughs> True. I was going to say, um, do you mind? I know we're kind of coming up on, on our hour here. Do you want to go to one of the funniest things I've read in this book? Yes. Pierre's numerology obsession. Let's Let's go. Let's go. Do you mind if I read a quick uh, Oh, please. Quick please do. Okay. Please do. I just got to the part in the book where there was like numbers and charts. I was like, ah, yes, I forgot about this one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So at this point, Pierre has gotten very involved in numerology because it's very fashionable to number the French alphabet and give assign each n- letter a number value. First one through 10, then in values of 10, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, you know, 100, 200, so on. And it's very fashionable to say, hey, if you take that and add up the letters in Napoleon's name spelled a certain way, it spells 666, which, as we all know, is the number of the beast in the Book of Revelations. Um, so it's signifying the end times. And Pierre gets really into this because it's a sign. It's some clarity. It's something that cuts through all the unknowns in his life. And so he starts trying to do this himself. And he writes down, he wrote the words, Lamper l'Alexandra, la nation russe, and added up their numbers. But the sums were either more or less than 666. Once making once when making such calculations, he wrote down his own name in French, Comte Pierre Bezukhov, but the sum of the numbers did not come out right. Then he changed the spelling, substituting a Z for the S and adding a day in the article lay, still without obtaining the desired result. Then it occurred to him, if the answer to the question were contained in his name, his nationality would also be given in the answer. So he wrote La Russe Bezukhov and added up the numbers and got 671. This was five too much, and the five was represented by the E, the very letter elided from the article lay before the word emperor. By omitting the E, though incorrectly, Pierre got the answer he sought. Larousse Bezuhoff made 666. This discovery excited him. How or by what means he was connected with the great event foretold in the apocalypse, he did not know, but he did not doubt that connection for a moment. His love for Natasha... Antichrist Napoleon, the invasion, the comet 666, Lemperer Napoleon, and Larousse Bezukhov, all of this had to mature and culminate to lift him out of that spellbound petty sphere of Moscow habits in which he felt himself held captive and led him to a great achievement and happy success. Nailed it. <laughs> Nailed it. Totally got it. Booked on Tolstoy <laughs> is a numerologist. We're good. We're good. Yeah. Um, I think something I think about. A long time ago, you sent me a post somewhere of someone trying to use War and Peace to make a point, and they're using the words of one of the Freemasons, and, he's, and you're kind of like pulling your hair out, and you're like, please oh, yeah. read further in the book, and you'll understand Tolstoy is not <laughs> actually saying this. He's trying to make fun of it. I think this is a good yeah. example of, um, I think the, the importance of reading a lot of Tolstoy, if you want to understand Tolstoy, because once you have read enough Tolstoy, 
and you're paying attention to the themes, it's really obvious when he's being serious, like at the beginning, and when he's like trying to make fun of someone. Um, yes. But if you don't necessarily have, if you haven't acquired that voice yet, you might not necessarily see when Tolstoy is trying to be, and it succeeds at being incredibly funny. <laughs> it's kind of like you have to acquire the sense for whose perspective he's occupying. Mm-hmm. And what parts of that perspective he himself shares, because those are really the valid ones. <laughs> yeah, which makes it difficult because he like goes between his uh, yes, little yeah. authorial ghost jumps between different characters at different times. <laughs> right. But this one is definitely a critique of, well, a lot of things. And it, it goes to our greater topic of the great man in history. And Pierre is trying to find this way, right, to make himself be connected to these historical events that he feels happening around him. But there's just <laughs> there's no way to do that. <laughs> He's just fiddling around with the numbers and the letters, and it's just an absolutely comical scene. He's just creating a, a little made-up system. He didn't yeah. create it, but he takes a little made-up system, shuffles some things around, gets the answer he was hoping for. Ban. Solved existentialism. And it's kind of like, I guess, if he really wanted to be involved in these events, like he could just go to war. That would do it. I mean, there's no guarantee he's going to actually do anything there, but like at least a little bit closer. <laughs> a single, a single person walking up to Pierre and saying "God helps those who help themselves" would absolutely destroy him. It, yes, <laughs> yes. But so I saw actually a lot of uh, connection here between Pierre and Natasha, which hmm. will become important later, more so than now. Well, I mean, you're kind of starting to see it now, but there's something that connects them on a deeper level. And there's this like almost exactly the same thing that happens to Natasha in church is happening to Pierre with his numbers, which is that she's seeing this right kind of system of thought of morals being built up around her. And then just like one thing kind of strikes her. It's just off. And she's like, oh, Mm. no, there goes my whole. It's all crashing down right uh, around me that sort of is partially the priest talking about destroying Russia's enemies, but it's also kind of has to do with her own everyday habits because you'll notice in that chapter, it's mentioned by the narrator that she's scrutinizing the other women's dresses out of habit. Just something that she can't help not doing. That's just right. Habits are important to Tolstoy. And so I think that's sort of like that baseline habit is what, kind of like opens her up to write this critique already of this overall system and so pierre is going to have this similar thing happen to him in this book which is going to be great and this book has a lot in store for us i think this is really setting up a lot i will still say connecting threads that i can see having read the book but at the moment not my favorite part of the book yeah funny but kind of like, you know, it's going to be more impactful as we get through book three. Like there's a lot of just like really good scenes and moments towards the end of it. Right. Like many beginnings, it's strong. Yeah. I mean, I think this is some of my favorite writing I've read so far in, in War and Peace. And that's not to say that there was it's a it's a high bar for my favorite writing. A lot of it's appeared in this part. But like you say, it is mostly in the service of setting up. You know, he's teeing up for something he's going to hit down the line. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of giving you his thesis, really, in the very first chapter <laughs> of book three. So he's going to kind of test that and let that kind of go. Sure. But 
I just, yeah, the connection between Pierre and Natasha, just to clarify, right? They're both seeking the sort of higher meaning and it's just really important to look at how characters search for that that's like like that's the gist of war and peace like that's the important thing to really pay attention to that's why he writes so many characters is you're supposed to compare them to each other and and look at how that development goes Mm -hmm. and you'll eventually arrive at something that resembles what tolstoy thinks and you might or might not agree with that i don't know not here to tell you what to think (laughs) all the time Sometimes. Just some of the time. Sometimes. Sometimes. Sometimes I am here to tell you what you think. But. Sometimes they're very specific. Well, like if you're going to read Notes from Underground in absence of the context, then we might say, no, you should read it in its context. But other times, hey, we're just here to put out some thoughts, which maybe you connect with or don't. Put out some thoughts, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> just asking questions. Just here to ask questions, really. <laughs> Like, where is Chris Hansen in all of this? Right. Why, why, why is Pierre, Andre, Denisov, why have none of them ever walked into the Rostov household and found a slightly older gentleman sitting there asking, or standing there asking them to take a seat? So many questions. <laughs> 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 well, I think, unless there's any last words you want to say, I think that was a good wrap up. No, I'm uh, out. Let's, I'm done. All right, let's, let's, let's be out literature forever. <laughs> <laughs> All right, it's been a good run, boys. Uh, next episode, we're going to be discontinuing this series because we've <laughs> finally solved it. Much like Wittgenstein solved philosophy forever, we've solved yep. Russian literature forever, and we're going to be yep. going on to our new passion, Political Theory Podcast. So I hope you're ready to read <sighs> The End of History by Francis Fukuyama next time, followed, by, of course, by one of our favorite novels uh, and articles, The Clash of Civilizations. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it like wouldn't be a good thing for me morally, I don't think, but mm. I would love to just have a podcast which is just called like Things That I Hate. <laughs> just like each episode is just something that really grinds my gears. <laughs> I think I think we should do I think we should one day do uh, what we do now, but for political text, because that would be the most incoherent podcast because we would be covering like literally Clash of Civilizations. Probably next time to some like, all right, let's talk Gramsci. All right, let's jump back oh, to yeah. this incomprehensible, very obscure Slavic philosopher. All right, let's go over to, to Lenin. You know, let's go back to Beauvoir. Uh, it would <laughs> it would be completely yeah. incomprehensible. And it, it would, would be, be beautiful. great. I would love to do that, especially not being an expert on like any except one of the names mentioned. That would be awesome. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, if we covered Lenin, that's a very uncontroversial topic. I think people would really sure. go along with it and we wouldn't get any... Uh, pushback or disagreement from people on no. our analysis that's a very no, i mean like part, hardly anybody even knows who that is so yeah exactly and so before we totally wrap up we want to go through our usual housekeeping unfortunately we don't have a um, one to yeltsin scale for you today but uh, i mean it was a pretty sober morning so hey what are you gonna do um what are we reading next episode? Well, as you might imagine, if you were paying attention at the beginning, we are moving on to part two of book three of War and Peace. Uh, so we're going to be building on our, you know, our, our year of the War of 1812. So fun stuff. Uh, be sure to head through that part if you want to uh, follow along with us. Although if you don't, 
obviously we're going to cover it in the podcast, so we got you covered either way. If you are, in fact, planning to read along with us, be sure to pick up your copy through our affiliate links on our website. And before we let you go, we wanted to extend a sincere thank you to all of our current patrons. We've got JG, Banana Karenina, Danielle, Margarita, Yulia, Amanda, John, Natalie, Khalil, Ben, James, Jacob, Elizabeth, Jay, Shannon, Haley, Blake, Amanda, Emily, Maya, Pagrob, Zachary, Austin, Isaac, Brett, Caitlin, Eli, Julie, Stephanie, Alex, Yitza, Drew, Joanne, Mysterious Donor Dude, Elise, Lucy, Cole, Allison, Brandon, Arini, Larkin, Alex, Lou, Jesse, Paige, Emily, Jack, Daniel, Darren, Daniel, one of those is known Daniel, one of those is unknown Daniel, Janice, and Alex. <laughs> Sorry, I forget one of our patrons had changed her name. It gets me every time. Madeline and Jeff. Podcasting isn't free and grad school doesn't pay very well, so if you're interested in joining with our current patrons to keep the show running, take a look at our Patreon at patreon.com slash tipsytolstoy. And another thing to note, the music used in this episode, as always, is Soviet March by Toasted Tomatoes. You can find more of their stuff on toastedtomatoes.bandcamp.com and also on YouTube under the same username. If you're looking for other places to find us, you can also follow us on Instagram at Tipsy Tolstoy Podcast, on Twitter at Tipsy Tolstoy, or you can join our email list on our website, tipsytolstoy.com. All right, you'll hear from us again soon. Bye.